welcome to Upbringing, where Hannah and Kelty, twins, mothers, and works in progress. Upbringing is a movement that empowers us all to engage bravely with the hardest aspects of parenting, to create positive change in ourselves, our families, and the world. Join us to build intention, elevate skills, and align our parenting practices with our greatest ideals. When we practice trust over fear, connection over control, and progress over perfection, we're not just raising our kids, we're raising ourselves. Let's show up and grow up. Today's episode is supported by ARC, beautiful and durable clothes for kids and mothers, female founded and produced sustainably and ethically in the USA. Learn more about ARC and support upbringing by visiting today's show notes and enter code upbringing for 15% off your purchase. Now onto our conversation. Latanya Yvette is a Brooklyn-based stylist, blogger, and mother to nine-year-old daughter, River, and five-year-old son, Oak. Latanya's eponymous blog beautifully combines the visual and emotional experiences that encompass women in the world today, and her debut book is no exception. Part memoir, part lifestyle guide, Woman of Color is filled with moving essays, gorgeous photos, and practical style and beauty advice. We love talking with Latanya about what coming of age means to her, the ways she's helping her children look at their differences and scars as both beautiful and empowering, and the ways she's healed from trauma through storytelling, color, and fashion. Here we go. One of our favorite quotes from Woman of Color is um, when you wrote, this road is about pain, it's about pushing past limits, it's about joy, it's about becoming. All in all, growing up is a process. That resonated so much with us. I mean, so much of what Kelty and I talk about is the hard stuff's the good stuff. We're all growing up together. Um, that Those are the themes that keep coming up in our lives and in uh, our time as parents. Um, and it was such a big part of the, the entire book. Yeah. And your book just just over and over, that was kind of the thread that was woven through it to us. Yes. Oh, that's so that's it's so important for me to hear because actually, like sort of the elevator pitch of the book, which I don't think a lot of people really got, but you guys got, is that it is sort of a coming of age. It is about the story of someone growing up and about sort of the, the fact that we are constantly growing and um and we all have these stories from our past and we kind of bring them into this next phase of growing with our children or whatever sort of next, uh, you know, corner that we take. And and so the book itself is actually just about, you know, a young woman, m- myself growing up and it is a sort of coming of age. So that makes me, I'm really happy that you guys got that. <laughs> I think a lot of it resonated with us as far as your childhood goes, because you actually, you put pictures in there of you as a kid, which um, childhood style is like, I think it's something we can all really connect with because we have such a deep kind of foundational, um, I don't know, like, like memory built in. Yeah. 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 You know, that pink sparkly scrunchie or, you know, (laughs) whatever those things were. And you just did such a beautiful job in describing what it was you wore and what it meant to you as a kid. Oh, thank you so much. And it actually was funny because the book's design, I thought about a lot. And part of it was thinking about my brain, my brain as a parent, my brain as someone who constantly sort of reimagines stories for people that I see on the street. And, um, and, and, and even when I'm reading books, like how I visualize stories and maybe it, it's important for us to also to be able to, you know, to give people visual sort of uh, a word space, but also visual, like help them with the visualization of um, like of a, of a memory of a, a sort of position that I was in or anything. So for me, it was just about giving people what I would want. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and, and, but then the book as a whole was written, you know, because I had this whole history and style and, um, and it's sort of how I've always recreated every experience, thinking about what I was wearing, thinking about what I was doing, thinking about all the stories of that day. It, it made it easy to sort of write from that space because that's actually how I like, will tell a story to a friend from like, and this day when this thing happened, I was wearing this and then, you know, and so even writing about it was just written from that storytelling space of like, this is how you tell stories and this is how I tell a story. And so, um, 
and maybe maybe it helps you um, put yourself there if I tell it to you this way. Absolutely. I think style and fashion can so easily be trivialized. And I think especially when it comes to kids, but I think that you really touched on the idea that our sense of style is a sense of who we are at that time and who we are becoming, you know, and it, how you talk about style as kind of a memory making storytelling. Yeah. I mean, it's so funny. I've noticed it so much with my daughter too, like how she needs to be super in charge of what she wears or she, um, and also with my son too, how they decide, like yesterday they wore crowns all day and it was such a rainy New York mm. chilly day and they decided to wear crowns around Brooklyn. And I was like, I don't know why they're doing this, but I'm just going to let them do it. And a part of me even thinking of when like raising my children is like what stories will they create around their own memories? And I think, you know, for instance, like the crown, the day we got hot chocolate and the leaves and the cold New York air, all of that, right? And and this is like a writer selling even her children out. But all of that is, you know, I, I really believe is so tied to um, our memories, good and bad. And, and, and so I just try to I try to be aware of that, not only as a writer, not only as a woman, but also as a mother and as a friend. And I think that there's, we all do that. And I actually think that that's the cool thing about the book and and the cool thing about having conversations and about storytelling is that internally, we all have that, that thing that we were wearing that one day and what it meant to us and what it will mean to us in the future. Yeah, it's like there are these little like memory anchors or something. I feel like I'm much more able to, even just having a photo taken, like if you were able to get a photo of your kids, what was it yesterday? Like they'll be able to remember that and then they'll have those like access to that experience and then they'll be able to kind of rewrite it too as they need over time. Exactly. And that's so, and also I think that's also the idea that like maybe your memory is sort of, failing you but there's certain things that you don't forget right it's like the dress the crown whatever and like maybe you forgot exactly how things flowed through that day and I also think that that was something that I tried to get across really clearly in the book is that actually there were no specifics as hard as I like I wrote age ranges you know I was seven I was eight whatever but I um didn't write like I tried not to write years And that for me is because someone who has had like a lot of trauma in my life and just also as a parent of two kids and had them both in my twenties and my, my grasp on actual years is really foggy. And I think that that's also the cool thing about leaning on what you were wearing, what you were doing and these other things is because it it takes the the pain away from sort of uh, not remembering specifically, you know, super specific timestamps, which is actually really common for mothers, but also from anyone who's, you know, just anyone actually, but specifically people who have had trauma or anything like that. That makes so much sense. Like this was the year before so-and-so died or this was the year after whatever. That that makes so much sense. Yeah. The calendar can be really traumatic when we go by that. Exactly, exactly. And I think that that's one of the things like as a parent, I'm always like trying to like be aware of and actively undo. And also I'm like, why? I'm so happy I have my phone with me. And even sharing photos of my children or myself. It's just like these, these are like sort of it's just I'm really happy also to have photography along with words along with the sort of the visual um, written things, you know, how I write about visual stuff, but also to have photos to back it up makes me feel, I don't know, just happy. You have a beautiful book to back it up. I'm just picturing (laughs) your kids getting to read this and, and, and discover who you are and who you were and who they were in a, in a big way. Like it's just like the most amazing gift you could possibly give to your kids. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. No, I mean, and seeing you, I think that something occurred to me when I was reading it that I think I grew up always thinking like my, my parents were just kind of infallible. They were perfect. They had perfect childhoods. Obviously everybody had a perfect childhood, but I think something that was just, I mean, 
this is a, a memoir of yours. So you, you really go into depth about your family struggles. Yeah. And as a child, it's really important to see maybe that you like mom was different. Something happened with mom. Yeah. Mom struggled with this thing. Can you tell us a little bit about how that affected you, how that redefined your sense of beauty and, you know, created like a sensitivity to otherness for yeah. other people? It's, it's really funny because that sensitivity is something that like is so apparent in my everyday of parenting with my children. And even though they don't have anything like a skin condition or something like that, um, my son actually had open heart surgery two years ago and now has a scar down his chest. And I felt really equipped to like deal with him in the scar. He feels super proud of it now like two years later and like the summer I spent so much time taking off his shirt and I think part of that is not only them seeing me and they still see like white patches on my skin and but in a very intimate sense but also there's constant language and constant communication about um what is different and what's unique and how we all are different and my own sort of huge sensitivity. It's funny, when I was younger, I don't, I think I was so in it and so in my own awareness of being other, right? Of being sort of different than everyone else because everyone like, you know, seemed very normal. Um, I I don't think that there was, because even my childhood seemed very normal. And that's the weird thing about like, and I just wrote about this the other day about growing up in your set home, your set family and not sort of going out of that, right? Because you normalize everything. So the way my family ran was normal to me. My skin was the thing that was so other in this very normal setting of life. And part of growing up was realizing that a, the way that I grew up wasn't necessarily quote unquote normal, right? But also there's so many other ways of being. But also my, like having Vitiligo like in this sort of like formative space, my daughter's now almost nine and I was seven. I think those are the years when you're truly like coming into who you are and coming into like your memories and coming into like, all these weird, funky issues like death, like sadness, whatever. And to have that happen around that time really changed my view of the world pretty early on and of how like of, of beauty being this sort of thing that some are given and some are not or is, or may, and, and then switching it to like, oh, well, actually this thing is beautiful and all these different things are beautiful. Um, but that's not to say that that wasn't a, a huge struggle and full of so much pain. And I, I was like, I could write about it now, like in a really powerful sense, but I actually was so deeply sad as a kid and also didn't talk to anyone about that. And also a lot of things that I wrote about in the book, I think even um, it opened up to my mom like years before writing the book about certain instances and she didn't even remember or know that certain things happened because I never expressed them and I didn't really talk about certain things. And so, you know, it was such a solo experience. For it was you. such a solo experience. Yeah. And I think the odd thing is because, and I, what I wrote about in the book is someone will say something to you like as a kid, and this is back then. I mean, I hope people have changed in 2019. <laughs> but some people will say something to you, but not say it to your parents. So I think a lot of the things I experienced were said to me, done to me. And like my, you know, and my mom had five of us, you know, so obviously there's that, and she's single, whatever. But there, it's just with such a solo, um, like, very, like, self-inner experience. And, like, I didn't speak. I didn't speak about it. I hardly talked. I realized, you, wrote that you've, you wrote that you felt like you were being erased. Yes. Exactly. Like that broke my heart to <laughs> read that. Oh, my God. I mean, I think when it comes to that, it's like you and you're a young black girl and you're in a black school majority black and you are the one who is sort of 
you know, un, like there's no reason why at this point too, you know, like turning white and peeling away sort of, right? In in the physical sense, you're like getting erased in this identity, this thing that you sort of have. And especially when you grow up with so many siblings, right? And you're the second to youngest, it's sort of being pulled and, and getting erased. But then there's the other thing. It's like you also try really hard. And that's also the, the latter part of the story is like erase yourself, And you try to be unseen and you try to be quiet. You try to hide your body. You try to basically be someone, someone doesn't comment on, even though you know they will comment on you. And so there's these other ways of also just erasure that you also do so that you are no longer the center where you are no longer the, you know, the object of people's comments. Um, So on top of the physical, aspect of having vitiligo and having things you know my skin turn white there was also the mental sort of thing that I did to myself to protect myself which was try to erase myself um but it was really funny because on the flip side though I still held on to clothes and I still used them to sort of armor me and also to to help me and so it's and I talk about in the book there's always this dual living this sort of you know living in multiple spaces and taking up like wanting to erase yourself wanting to hide wanting to not be seen but also wearing things that you know unconsciously or consciously make you you know be seen yeah that empower you that that confront all those things and it it just, it goes to show how much work you've done personally. Um, and, you know, through the healing of style and fashion too, as partially I would imagine, to be able to experience something like that with your son. And instead of, you know, having been traumatized to a certain extent from your early experiences, you're not encouraging him to hide it or saying, keep your shirt on or doing what I would imagine could occur to a lot of people who've been scarred by that kind of thing, but you're encouraging him to embrace it and to own it and to feel proud of it in his own way, in his own time. Yeah. It's just really impressive. <laughs> Thank you. It was, you know, it was actually, actually quite funny because it was, I read about before he even had the surgery, it's something that you have to do before, you know, something like you have to fix your mind that something on your child is going to change too, which is like odd, right? You're like, Oh wait, my child won't look the same. Like this will be a little bit different after this. Okay. And so I like re I had to like fix that in my mind and like Google, like how things would look right during the process, but post. Um, and it was funny cause I fell like into these articles. I was like, it's called like the zipper scar. And so then we, his dad and I talked a lot about, about it with him before the surgery and even after and was like, I mean, you're just so cool. Like no one, you know, has like a zipper down their chest and their skin. Like, I, I mean, like, like how cool is that and how different is it? And so it's funny because I think, you know, now, like he really truly believes it and I believe it's so cool, but also like, giving him language about it and you know obviously there are ways that he's still self-conscious like he doesn't like shirts that sometimes dip too low in the winter but then he spent all summer with his shirt off and so you're just like okay well if you don't like that I understand but you know your zipper is super cool and people want to know how strong your heart is and how strong you are and like you've been through things that like some people have never been through and that's like super duper you know, amazing. And so also teaching him that it's, it's wonderful to also have already been through something so young. And that kind of shows how strong he is physically, but also emotionally already at five and giving him strength in something that he may see that separates him from other people, um, like giving him power already and how to use that thing, you know, and so it even in those conversations, like using myself as an example, like, you know, Hey, you know, you know, the white patches on mommy's knees where you guys see, like I used to, you know, just giving them stories about that. And it's been, it's been really wonderful to be able to use myself as an example, but also I think at the same time, actively undoing some deep 
harm that I did in the past. Like, of course, I use therapy, but I think having children at such a young age and such like a formative part of my life, like in my twenties, and having to deal with that, my skin in relation to them has really, really helped me like deep, deep, deeply. You know, so. Yeah, but what an amazing opportunity and reminder to us all as well to wear our scars with pride. And and that's like a straight up physical symbol of something that we're all trying to do yeah. more, which is to be able to tell the stories of our challenges and our struggles and our bravery and and our trauma. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's 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 cool because I think there's like, you know, someone asked me like, how did you get so like strong or something like that? I was like, well, there's no other way to live, right? And I think that that's the biggest, like if like, it, you just when you have no other way that's the only way to live and I think being able to sort of be in some way having a book be a teacher of this um has been really really powerful for me as an adult you know it's like oh my gosh like now like it's only been six months since it's been out but having it being like just see, seeing how it can continue to teach adults but also people can keep it around for their young daughters and like there are things that we all want to hide there, but life is also too, like life is too fragile and our bodies are like whole the way that they are. And so I don't know, it's been, and even the internal mental stuff, like I talk about the racing, you know, in my, um, the mental part of the, about, about the racing that, that is also something that like I am aware of and I need to be aware of to do the work that I do. And, and so it's just, I don't know. I'm just really grateful. <laughs> What's so amazing is that to, to combat that erasing, to combat that invisibility and distancing and fear and trauma, you talk about using color to do that mm-hmm. and, and how color was this kind of lifesaver for you in some way that you wrote, um, I love this, color matters mm-hmm. and that it kept trauma out and kept joy in for you. You know, it drove your creativity and it protected you. Yeah. And I just, I think that is so beautiful. It was something visible, something not just visible, but like very bright (laughs) to say, look, here I am. This is what I've experienced. It's been like a, it's like a physical, more um, representation of, of the healing that you were doing in some way. That's how I interpreted it. Yeah, that's exactly it. And it's, it's, I don't know. It's just really, it's weird to also write about things that you, in in a way that it's because of who you are. Right. And so it's funny. It's not like I didn't write about any, like, it's not like it's something that like I was taught. Right. It's literally, it's just the way that I protect myself. It's the way that I am. It's the way that who I am in the world, the way that I need to be to move through the world. And when the way your family brought you up too. I mean, there was such a familial thread kind of woven through your your whole sense of style besides just your upbringing. Yeah. Your grandma was your style icon, right? Yes, exactly. And just also, yeah, I mean, just to even, you know, be raised around someone who chose to get dressed, you know, who chose to like every morning, like no matter her own history, her own traumas, her own struggles to like decide to like, put on and like give us an example oh my gosh so i mean i think this photo is in the in the book but it's just like that metallic silver suit i mean she i think it was like her birthday so she was wearing that but like she would wear like and have a pair like leopard stretch like pants legs she was super tiny but she would wear like these stretcher stretch leopard pants these like silver or gold flats a button up, but maybe she would have like a vest, like a leather vest on top of it, or like, but then also like a gold folded hat that is like, I don't know, if you could think it was like a hat from the 90s, but bright and gold and like big earrings and like curly hair coming down to like her, her shoulders. And it's just, but that would be like a to go like a few blocks. That was like, that was like, I mean, this is a person who like never went on a plane. 
So like, like she was like so Brooklyn in the sense of like her neighborhood was her like community or like her people, her like these, she would do that to like go to the doctor's office down the block, like down the street. Like that, what, like there wasn't, there were no like yoga pants, you know, or whatever it was like, that's what she wore to run an errand. (laughs) <laughs> you think of that picture of her wearing a crown. Uh, she wore her birthday. every birthday. Every, yeah, every single birthday. Every and that makes me birthday. think of the way you describe her. She's just like a queen. That's like her dominion. That's like how she was. And she was also super sweet and humble. And so I think my, even her, even her relationship to style was all about herself. Right. And I think that that's, the important part about the book or about even like me saying like a dress or show her or explain my relationship to her was that it's actually not even about other people. It's just about yourself and doing things that again, make you really soul happy and, and bring some like can sort of combat and things on the outside, but also protect you. And so I, I, I look at her when, when it comes to that a lot, like how she just chose to do this every single day. Well, then you were given so many pieces of hers when oh she God. passed away, right? Yes. Um, so much. I, love that, I love that you wrote that you were stitching a piece of her memory, not just into your closet, but into your everyday walk in life. Yeah. It's really beautiful. But the, I mean, Kelty and I are a big, uh, we're very sentimental. We're we're collectors, um, and especially of the clothing variety. Our our dear um, Aunt Joanne, who passed away, was kind of our style shopping icon. Yeah. And we have like bags, you know, of her clothes still, and we like keep them zippered up because they still smell like her, like that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah, you know, some people listening might be like, "That sounds crazy." No, it doesn't though. Like it's my daughter goes in my closet. <laughs> and she's just like, can I, you know, wear this? And I'm like, no, it just has to stay in great condition because it means something to me. <laughs> but, you know, but for me, when I, and I do wear a lot of it. And, like, I wore some of it, like, a vest on the shoot the other day. And for me, too, even wearing the vest, it's like I needed to wear the vest. I needed to, like, feel close to, like, someone in my family like that while I was doing this photo shoot, you know? And that, and in feeling sort of that like ancestral pride, and my grandmother was so such like the kind of person who was like, "You're gonna like do something one day, like don't ever let anyone tell you that you're not gonna like do anything." People would tell me I couldn't sing, and I ended up singing in church all the time. Like you know, like she just always would speak real like life affirmations into me and into herself, and I think about that a lot, and not even like I like over like sort of in a goal sense think about that but sort of in a body sense and even when I'm wearing her clothes like needing that 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 relationship on my like in my you know on certain days or it's sort of just in general in my walk of life um well it's strength there's again more protection from color and from clothing and from memories and family it's all connected exactly I'm wondering how you manage your kid's style and, <laughs> and, you know, allowing them to express and also, you know, taking part in, in that education and in that, you know, context building for them. Yeah. You know, I had so much fun dressing both of them when they were younger. River wore a lot of vintage stuff. Oak had a lot of hand-me-downs from River. And so everyone thought he was like a girl because he would wear like yellow, a lot of pink and, um, I was just thinking about it the other day. I had so much fun dressing them and like getting a bunch of vintage stuff. And they're both into like overwhelming comfort these days. It's like beyond. <laughs> I don't know what this is. Plus pounds. Yes. <laughs> so like you know, it's all a dance for rivers. So does comfort mean like really unattractive stuff? Is that like code? No, it means like or just river- the priority. <laughs> The priority. So, like, if it's not comfortable, they won't even look at it. And so, like, River wears leggings 98% of the time. But she likes leggings that have, like, designs and cool prints. And she likes to layer them with dresses. And, like, she really likes cool sneakers. And she loves to, like, wear, like, like this plum sheer lipstick. And loves to do her hair and put in a lot of clips to her hair. And loves designs. And so... 
it, it, she's also a Capricorn, so she's also very like, this is what I like, and you can fit what you want into this box over here. So comfort is just like they love to move their bodies; they're busy, and so she can wear a dress. She will wear a dress if she can wear leggings. She doesn't like it too long. It can be itchy. It's just like it, it's very cottons are our go to, <laughs> nothing else, and um. So you never wear jeans. My son calls them hard pants. So, <laughs> I don't even understand it. So he, but he doesn't like sweats. So there's a middle ground of like not leggings, not sweats, but softer pants to wear. Um, approach dresses. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's where it's at. Exactly. So you know, for me, we honestly, I wish it was so easy. It's not easy. It's definitely like conversations. My daughter, I let it go because I also like thinks. I think that when she does come up with her own things without my input, it's so cool and so actually inspiring that she like, I could see her activating this confidence when she's like, oh, I'm going to wear this. Oh, and then I'm going to wear this. And then I'm going to wear Like I could see it like building and then sort of see her following through the rest of the day with that confidence um, because she picked out her pieces is, is, is really sweet to watch. And then my son is just, he follows her. So <laughs> if he sees her doing it, he's like, oh, okay, I'm going to pick out those pieces. But his stuff is also very basic because he's very basic. So he, I mean, like he's, but he likes to, he only, he likes to pick out his own stuff. So um, I'm kind of just left to sit back and watch. That's kind of where we're at these days <laughs> and see what they come up with. But yesterday they wore crowns. So, you know, we're in, we're, in, we're doing good. <laughs> I love it. I love that you say, get weird, have fun, yeah. be bold. What else are we to do? Yes. That about sums up kids' fashion. Yes, <laughs> Our fashion exactly. should be us too. We, sh- we should get to do that. And I feel like you give us permission in women of color. Oh, thank you. My kids do call us the weird family. Like, we're all just a bunch of weirdos. I'm like, I know. Isn't it amazing? Yes. Everyone gets to be weird. We all get to be weird. So it's nice. <laughs> um, would you um, wrap up our conversation by reading the five rules for coming into your own? We loved yeah. all the five rules sections in the book. They were awesome. Yes, I'll do that. Yeah. Okay. Five rules for coming into your own. Number one, the road to coming into your own requires an acknowledgement of all the generations that gave you a path to then explore what your own may even consist of. Two, everyone has an opinion. None of it matters. Coming into who you are often takes an immense level of privacy. Three, flaws are building blocks for what eventually sets you apart from the rest. Look at them with care. Use them to your advantage. Four, no one can put you in a corner if you don't give them a corner to put you in. And five, How everyone sees you is their problem. How you see yourself is yours. Work on that before you start working on how you're viewed by others. That was fun. That was really fun. LaTanya is lovely. I wish we could have spoken with her longer. Yeah, it was it was fun for me picturing her sitting all cozied up in a corner of the wing in New York, mm-hmm. and we're so like, different from where we are on different. our like honky tonk farm. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, but yeah. Okay. What were some takeaways for you, Kel? Mm-hmm. Something that really stuck out and resonated after chatting with her was just the concept of storytelling. And I know it's because we're talking about a book of hers mm-hmm. full of her stories, memoir. her memoir, but also just she spoke about storytelling herself so much, mm-hmm. storytelling to her kids, storytelling through the things she wears or, you know, storytelling from her grandmother to her. Yeah. Intergenerational storytelling. Yeah. And and stories of other, wi- other women mm-hmm. in the book were so amazing. They I love beautiful. those portions of the book. <sighs> It kind of inspires me to tell my kids more stories. I've been Absolutely. slowly ramping up lately with my uh, Avonlea Improvement Society mm. series of stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I've tried to do those, but I'm definitely not as talented as you are. You've read Anne of Green Gables more times than I have, so I feel like you just have the culture just rich in your psyche compared yeah. to me. It's been fun. We Every story, I try to think of something that 
and Diana and Gilbert can all do together to like help Avonlea in the village or help a person who's hurt or, you know, improve the side of a barn or surprise an old lady with kittens or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've been it's doing just a like lot what of what you as a do-gooder would want to be doing if you well, lived in an adorable little town. It's all the fun stuff. So it's like kittens, uh-huh. cupcakes, shiny gems. They find all the things mm-hmm. that our kids Harvesting really are into. Things. Right. Yeah. Um, and, but then I fold them into these sort of like, you know, yeah, what's a nicer word for do-gooder? I'm totally, it's failing me right now. I but. have no vocabulary today. I'm sorry. Okay, that's sorry. okay. I'm glad we're recording a podcast. Oh yeah, Um But anyway, it, I'm, well, trying and, to, I'm trying okay. to pull in more mindful descriptions. Mm-hmm. I loved how much LaTanya uh, t- even just talked about giving people who are wandering on the street a story, thinking mm-hmm. about where they're from and who they are and what they're like. Um, well, that everybody has... Even if you don't write someone's story for them or you can imagine, you're just having an open mind that people have scars that we can't necessarily see. Mm-hmm. And I think that something that our mom did a beautiful job of was she would point out someone who was maybe struggling or being an asshole or whatever, and she'd say, we don't know what's going on with them right now. We mm-hmm. don't. They are having a hard day. What could be happening? Maybe their mom's in the hospital. Maybe they don't have any money. Maybe they got fired yesterday. We never know what's going on with somebody else unless we talk to them. And even then, we don't always know. Mm-hmm. But it's it's this it's this um, exercise in giving people the benefit of the doubt, being open to experience and curious about other it's, people's lives. When you kind of when you're storytelling, even in your mind, you're living with empathy mm-hmm. because you're trying to put yourself in their world a mm-hmm. little bit. Yeah. Um, I also just, I don't have that many printed photos of myself anymore. I don't know. I think all of our albums are at mom's. We need to go get them. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you mean like as a kid, just as you know, kid and and teenager stuff. I love the idea of just showing more pictures of ourselves growing up to our kids and talking about what we wore and what we were experiencing, what we smelled, what we ate, what we felt. Mm -hmm. Um, it's such a wonderful way to connect with them. And then, you know, we look at old pictures of them quite often, but not so, not so often us, you know, but she, she really kind of put me in mind to tell stories more mindfully, Mm. thinking about the smell in the room, thinking about the way a certain garment felt on, think about, you know, the crunch my shoes made on the back patio in that and one the, way. And the difficulties that we experience too. I think it's so easy to to want to protect our kids from just harder stories. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not saying anything traumatic. I mean, LaTanya went through some serious experiences growing up with the death of her grandmother, of her father. Mm-hmm. Um, her she, skin condition. Yeah. Um, moving, yeah. Moving different places. Um, and I mean, there's a way we can tell our kids those things that is appropriate and developmentally appropriate, but that can also just help us feel connected and help them understand that we're, you know, real human beings, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, What else? I don't know. I had a thought and then it just ran away. That's okay. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's definitely easier if you have photos from that time to be able to walk through it in your own mind, you know, I've done, I've had this exercise that I've done every now and then where it's usually when I'm trying to fall asleep or struggling to wake up. And I, I place myself in like our old childhood home mm-hmm. or in Aunt Joanne's house in Spain or at grandma and grandpa's house when we were kids in, in Wisconsin. And I just mentally walk through every single room and I try to identify things on the walls and what it smelled like and what it felt like and who would be doing what in each room, like almost like I'm a ghost revisiting this this time and place. Mm. And I think that would be probably fun to do. You're with telling the kids. yourself your own story, kind yeah, of your, your self storytelling. It's like revisiting <laughs> in a in a like a as a mindful exercise. Mm-hmm. Of I love sorts. that. I love that. Um, I was just really wowed by the way Latanya talked about encouraging her son oak to embrace all of his scars and his uniqueness um and to find that empowering and not like pushing him to do it but just being there and supporting him through it in his own way Mm -hmm. and that was really inspiring yeah you know kids don't often get that that chance they often are if they're lucky you know very um very healthy and um don't have to go through a don't have to go through something like that looking different or feeling different um or changing at at a certain point, so yeah. But Latonia also pointed out that whether you have a, a zipper scar down your chest or not, 
we all feel insecure around mm-hmm. that age, <clears throat> maybe That's starting so around true. Oak's age, but moving more towards her daughter River's age. Mm-hmm. It's, whether you ha- whether you uh, feel like you're being erased and have an actual condition or have a scar or have a thing, we all had that self-conscious feeling coming into age, coming of age mm-hmm. around then when you start noticing your differences more and you're feeling self-conscious. And she, like she said, we we end up making an effort on purpose to erase ourselves, mm-hmm. to blend in, to not put ourselves out there to get embarrassed or have people make comments about us. That's so hard. How do we, how do we, you know, keep our kids feeling resilient and empowered and not give mm-hmm. a shit about and what all those kids say to us? I mean, not they don't have to tell us everything. That's a time in their lives once they start keeping things to themselves more and ha- experiencing things on their own. But God, I really want my kids to know that mm-hmm. if they get you know, um, bullied, or, bullied by somebody mm-hmm. or just struggling with something that they can totally come to me. And that's why you and I are really, really finicky about welcoming and supporting all of their feelings and observations when they're young, the way they're Even age right they're now, perceived because negative. they seem negative. They seem unnecessary. They seem random. <laughs> they come up with very seemingly or random mean. stuff or mean or any of those things. And, but that's, you know, it's the pattern that we're establishing now that tells them we are a safe place. Come to us. We are here. Mm-hmm. We can support. Um, otherwise, they, you know, find friends to do that with, hopefully, you know, or or other people. But I'd rather it be me. I kind of mm-hmm. kind of want to be that person for my kids as long as I can. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a forever relationship we're trying to work on. <sighs> what else? I think so much of what, I loved about Latanya's book was just her connection to style and fashion through her mother and her grandmother, because mm-hmm. you and I are are very connected that way with our mom and with our great aunt who died. Yeah, yeah, it matters a lot. Owning some of their things, wearing some of their things, mm-hmm. and you and I have a couple pretty big Tupperwares of stuff that we don't really <laughs> wear anymore. But we just we ha- we could not let them go and think maybe the the kids will want them someday. You never know. Mm-hmm. This sort of ties in as well to the whole concept that we come back to every now and then of leaving a legacy of things for our kids. Mm-hmm. And how, how can we imbue some of them with meaning or our kid, or how do we let our kids do that themselves? And also, how do we not just leave a pile of garbage for our family to go through? Mm-hmm. This That's is like a, a little line. bit of a tangent, but <laughs> when I've been through enough houses and enough boxes of our family's stuff Mm -hmm. to just, I don't want to do that to my kids. Right. Well, and the meaning of the objects wasn't just that they belong to that person, but that you saw them wearing it too. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, like our Aunt Joanne's jewelry we have on right now, because we saw her wearing them and the pieces she didn't wear as much were kind of like, "Eh, I don't know. Yeah. So, but then there were those kind of like funny surprises, like when we were cleaning out her bedroom and we opened the, the cupboard, like way up above her, her, Mm -hmm. um, her closets Mm -hmm. and it's just bags and bags of fucking shoulder pads Mm -hmm. like what are those for where did those come from the the 80s 80s, obviously but (laughs) it was like a nice little surprise being like oh aunt joanne i would like i wish that she'd been here so i could have like ripped her Uh about bags of shoulder pads. yeah so i mean they're always wonderful surprises but you know it's it's all of everything it's all the feels it's all the things yeah when it comes to but I like how she talked about them as sort of armor. Mm-hmm. Speaking of shoulder pads. Yeah, um, as a protective element. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she said something about resistance, too, in the book, and I wrote it down. Um, mm-hmm. And I think we can end our um, our little wrap-up with it. But it's the idea of beauty as resistance. And mm-hmm. you and I talk about resistance a lot and yeah. feeling empowered, standing for who we are. And she said, she said something about either beauty or style, and she said, there's an act of resistance in it, in choosing to see beauty through the grit each day. Beauty as resistance, beauty as survival. I love that. So learn more about LaTanya and find details on her book at latanyayvette.com. And you can explore her further on Instagram at latanyayvette. As always, we would love to hear your thoughts on our conversation with LaTanya. So please DM, call, email, or contact us through our website, upbringing.co and subscribe, rate and review so others can find us. Yeah, we've also begun an Ask Us Anything segment at the end of our outro music, which is replacing last season's lullaby Byes. So get in touch with a question you'd like us to twin talk. Mm-hmm. It can be personal, professional, anything that you're curious about and we will rant and riff and explore it a little bit. Yeah. 
Lastly, you are doing an amazing job and we're so proud of you. We're right here with you taking steps to better understand ourselves, our kids, and one another. So thanks for being here. We're all growing up together. Till next time. for the Ask Us Anything portion of our show, where we get a little vulnerable, a little personal, and a lot honest about whatever you're curious about, personally, professionally. Any of the Lees. Yeah. It's hard for us to, um, you know, put ourselves out there a little bit. You know, we talk about our stuff a lot. Um, We don't talk about, you know, what we, we talk about what we believe in, but we don't talk a whole lot about details of our lives. And so Mm -hmm. that's the idea. If you're interested in getting to know us a little bit more, um, listening to this portion. Mm -hmm. What's the question today, Kel? We've been getting some really great questions. Uh, And this one we shared on Instagram recently, and a lot of people said, yes, I want to hear that as well. Mm -hmm. I'm really curious about that. We we should probably do like a whole show on this, but let's start with an Ask Us Anything. (laughs) Yeah. So the note said, I come from a family of seven. I have a special needs sister one year older than me and grown up um, and growing up, sorry, my parents used to compare us a lot, but mainly to make my sister feel better about the areas she lacked in. I didn't mind as a kid because I thought I was helping my sister get better. But as I grew up, I realized it had a detrimental effect on my confidence. My inner voice always put me down, something to this day I'm working on. Fast forward to today and I have twins and the comparison factor is so strong. I'm really struggling with it. As twins and now parents, how do you not compare? Hmm. This is tricky. I feel like yeah. we should have taken notes on this. This is going to be like a shit show <laughs> okay. of just random thoughts. But bear with us for a few minutes here. I feel like um, we, we organized some thoughts recently because right after we got this note, one mm-hmm. of our other friends who has twins mm-hmm. was asking similar twin questions. Sons, yeah. yeah, twin seven-year-olds. And and we got to kind of explore it a little bit. Yeah, we should have like looked back at what we were talking about, but maybe it'll come to us again. <laughs> but basically... Gosh, it's so, so tricky. And I think that twins are a really interesting example of how we should generally treat any siblings. But I think that they they bring up these questions a little bit more because the comparison factor, as she said, is so strong that mm-hmm. it's really difficult to not compare. I think, um, I, but I, I agree. Mo- most people compare siblings even. Mm-hmm. Sisters, brothers, brothers and sisters, mm-hmm. whatever it is. It's, yeah, or they compare the, their kid to how they were as a kid. Or mm-hmm. they compare their kid to their sibling or whatever. Um, you and I are very sensitive to comparison. We are anti-comparison. <laughs> Maybe being twins. Because we're be twins. Why? I think that's why we're so sensitive oh, man, about it. Oh, we baggage on that one. Because it's like, which one are you constantly? Mm-hmm. Which one's Hannah? Which one's Kelty? Oh, Hannah has a little scar. It's Hannah hair because her, ha- her hair is red. Oh, my God. It's just Jesus a Christ. Lot, yeah. A lot, a lot of stuff. Our entire lives of people saying, stand next to each other. And let me see. Let me guess. Oh, my God. Remember? Oh, it's all coming back to uh-huh. me. Which one's taller? Which one this? Which one that? Mm-hmm. Like, Which one's better at this? Who's yeah. getting this? Blah, blah, blah. Do you guys get the same grades? Do you have ESP? Do you like... Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, there's. I mean, there's some serious disrespect out there for twins. We should. Mm-hmm. We could do a whole thing on twins. That would be really fun. Uh, Get a bunch of we people talking about this. I was like, this could be stuff. a podcast for twins by twins, yeah. made for twins to listen to. Mm-hmm. It's a niche. It, it absolutely is. <laughs> but it, but I have been just incredibly inspired by how many twin moms are following us. Mm-hmm. Like not that they aren't a twin themselves; they are raising twins, mm-hmm. um, and that's just pretty cool. Like I want to know what your experiences are people raising twins how's it going Mm -hmm. what struggles have you had it was so cool just hearing from this person this woman who wrote back about her um about her her sister and growing up did we want to say anything in particular to her like that must have been really hard i want to validate that first that that uh, that's so understandable that as parents we want to when we see differences in siblings or in twins we want to help compensate we're like oh they they're both my children so my children need to be equal mm-hmm. they you know one oh is a li- lacking a little here so i'm gonna give them a little buoy but then what does that do to the other child mm-hmm. equity is such a a, a tricky and, thing and parody yeah and mm-hmm. parody and ev- we want everyone to be happy everyone to get the same everyone i mean we see it with the kids being like you know, one of our oh, daughters geez. would be like, the other one had, I just heard that she had a lollipop three days ago. I need mine now. Mm-hmm. Like, th- it's just like built into their DNA. Right. And our desire to want to ameliorate their discomfort and mm-hmm. to prevent friction between mm-hmm. them 
caused by, you know, these comparisons. And fairness. But, yeah. And fairness and all these yeah. things. Um, so I think something we've been trying to do is to not have things fair all the time. Because the urge is to really like three grapes in your plate, three grapes on your plate. Mm-hmm. And that's not how it always is. Yeah. And it's it's basically just asking for conflict. But they've done a lot of work around through that, yeah. right? But also that's sort of like a side element to the yeah. idea of comparison. Okay. Really, which is, I'm going to bring us back to the question Thanks, here. Carol. So about comparing is such a big deal. And uh, and this person and our friend asked us, as as twins, as you were growing up, were you compared? We were definitely compared by everybody outside of our home. Constantly. Absolutely. Constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then but we were forced to think back and think like, did mom and dad kind of compare us? Well, I, I don't know. I think generally speaking... I think the idea of comparing can feel like a good thing to do, not just to help balance the kids out, but to also identify them as unique people. And, and to so be like, I see you yeah. as, as this. I see you, you like right. that. I like, see you, you're you're doing not that. the same person. I think we've come a long way in, in our culture from dressing the kids exactly the same, mm-hmm. naming them rhyming names like... Mm-hmm. Betty and Deddy, or you know, doing things like that necessarily. I can't Deddy even think is sweeping of the nation. <laughs> Number one baby I name this year, think, everybody. But, but really seeing them, seeing kid twins as like as one person, kind of, or as a real right. unit. So in that and, effort, we've right. we've striven to maybe differentiate for them, yeah. or help them in that differentiation. Yeah, and I think that that in itself is is a, a, a quality aim, but I think that it can be at the expense of of maybe just over-guiding and over-controlling their identity formation process. You and I are really finicky, Kelty, about praise, um, judgment, labels, anything like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think something that we mentioned to our friend was that what we try to do with our kids and what we would what we would have loved as as children, I think our parents did this to a certain extent, mm-hmm. was that we let our kids discover these things for themselves and label themselves. And then when they bring it up to us or say it, then we reflect that back or for we example, build some context. They'd so say for example like I'm I'm really what I'm I'm the I'm the painter. Like I paint more than Laszlo, let's say, if Roy says right. I paint more than Laszlo, I'm a painter. I'm the you painter know, in the family. Yeah, or, or something like I that. I love painting. I don't even think she would say that because we never say that. Yeah. You're the this in the family. You're mm-hmm. the that. I think we really try to just refrain from saying any grandiose generalized statements uh, that identify our kids as this or that. Um, and we let them say, I'm this. And and we try and keep it, as I, as I mentioned to our friend, very temporal and, and moving like, oh, you love painting right now. You know, or, this isn't who you are. This isn't what you're doing forever. This isn't in comparison to your sibling who's listening and thinking, well, I like painting too. What does that mean about me if I'm not painting? I think the the big answer to this question and what we spoke with our friend about and what I was thinking about just from our childhood and what we're trying to do with our kids is just say less. Mm-hmm. Just compare less, just label less, judge, just shut up. Mm-hmm. And when your kid says, I'm the painter, Literally just nod and smile. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Just nod and smile. This is not about us. This is not about us jumping on a bandwagon to validate their new little like identity thing that they're really excited about right now. Because they're going to try on identities. Absolutely. Yeah. But they should be able to try those on and assert those themselves, not be given a label by us. Because what, what's the risk if when we do that, when we're labeling our kids? Well, it's, it's all connected to praise, essentially. Mm-hmm. This is a big conversation about praise because I think people often do compare mm-hmm. in a praising way mm-hmm. you know it's it's all tied into praise it's all tied into what we talked about last episode alfie Cohn's unconditional parenting which is just staying out of it praise is judgment mm-hmm. comparison is judgment we don't want to judge our kids because then they look to the external factors for judging constantly mm-hmm. am i doing this well enough would you call me a writer i mean how many artists do we know where you're like you're an artist come on assume the title but they're waiting for these external measures of of success or instead of or whatever I'm, I'm loving painting lately and yeah. I paint I just, a lot and I just, I, yeah. it doesn't have to be my identity or who I am I just like doing it mm-hmm. and so that's why we always we really switch from from the noun to the verb we're always mm-hmm. in the verb status so like mm-hmm. you love baking you love wearing pink not pink's your favorite color and blue's your favorite color you like wearing we pink. like pink lately yeah. you really dig in pink yeah. right our parents put us in uh and I asked my mom about this recently mm-hmm. because Kelty and I have separate color uh, spectrums that we grew up wearing. You can probably still see that. And uh, Yeah, maybe. Um, and I asked my mom about it recently, and she said that 
she actually th- had trouble telling us apart. And I think she said that I had a scab on my head for a long time that helped them. <laughs> <laughs> and then it fell off and they were like, fuck, what do we do? Yeah. So she said that she didn't want us to be looking the same all the time. And so she'd always bought different colors of whatever it was, like basically sweatpants sets times like a thousand. Yeah. Um, and so uh, she was kind of like, maybe Hannah should just always be in the warms, the reds, the pinks, the oranges, and Kelty can always be in the cool colors. And that can be kind of their spectrum. And she did it as a, a way to, to just make it easier to tell us apart. But we really identify with those colors now in a really mm-hmm. big way. They're a huge part of who we are. But I, I really appreciate that she did that because I felt... Like I owned something, you know, and I think that with twins, just like with siblings, they, they just want to own something and be a part of something, but it, it has to be done very subtly but and carefully. Also, it's very tricky. And I was, yeah. I was remembering, I remember one time mom said something like, wow, Kelty, you're really the techie one. Like you're making mm-hmm. all these mixtapes and you want a camcorder and you can, you know, get in there and do this and that. And I remember bristling and being like, Hannah does it too. And I'm like, <laughs> I couldn't even just take a compliment that I'm like liking engaging no, with something. No, and I wa- was like doing something in the other room and I heard that and I was like, I felt like that was an attack to me because I wasn't doing it. And I was like, I do that sometimes. You're so crazy. But I was literally mom just saying, I see that I you're really into this. this. Mm-hmm. But what she was really saying was, to the way I took it uh-huh. was this is you and that's really different from Hannah yeah. and it and I didn't like that yeah. I don't want to be the same as you I didn't want but I didn't want her pushing me away from you mm-hmm. yeah twins are weird well and I think that we were talking with our friend about this I think that a lot of conflict comes from beginning to self-identify and beginning to separate not just from us as parents but the siblings from one another mm-hmm. and starting to realize oh my sibling is a little more social than I am. Or, oh, my sibling rages on me sometimes when they don't feel comfortable inside. And and that what, that's really a, a jarring feeling to feel let a sibling or a parent, let alone an identical twin, um, separating from you. It's a separation. Yeah. It truly is. Yeah. That's how I've always felt. You know, we've gone through little um, separations in our in our childhood and I remember adolescence. When you, uh, you put a bunch of wasabi on your sushi and I was like, whoa, <laughs> whoa we don't eat wasabi. Okay, I was thinking of like having a boyfriend first <laughs> oh, yeah. and like going through that kind of Drinking stuff. Drinking beer first. Drank beer. I, yeah. I, mean, I mostly did everything first. Basically. basically. But that was consistent, right, Kel? Pretty At consistent. Least, yeah. yeah. But still it was hard every time, you know, I did something different. It was always hard for us to adjust a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, but I think that the earlier these things happen, by us motivated by the kids and not by the parents it's it's moving us forward into a more mature relationship as self-identified you know individuals yeah so what can we be doing as parents of twins and of siblings Mm -hmm. other than just not saying anything or smiling and nodding but just noticing and we can make we can notice these things and just talk to our partner about it or a friend about it and write it in our journal with pictures or whatever it is yeah but so it we doesn't, have memories. Yeah, it doesn't have to be something that we put on our kid, you know? Yeah, yeah. and wait for them to, to, to identify something about themselves, you know, that they, I am a girl, you know, those types of things. Or I like wearing boys' clothes instead of being like, oh, she's the tomboy, she's the this, mm-hmm. you know? I just, we have to be really careful with, the, with those labels um, and careful with labels for ourselves as well. I think that that's how children can often be labeling themselves is not just the labels they've been given by mm-hmm. us, but just the modeling of, oh, I suck at this. Oh my gosh. Or, oh, I hate this was that. This a big one this summer because my father-in-law always says it in the most self-deprecating, oh, wonderful way. Yeah. He, he says something to my daughter like, oh, I'm terrible at swimming. And I'm like, oh my God, you swim every day. Growth you, mindset, You get Bell. out there and you swim every <laughs> single day. Please don't say you're a bad swimmer. Or you know, even someone saying it to my daughter, I'm, I suck at puzzles. No. And, and I'm like, no, N- nobody sucks at puzzles. It's just not your favorite thing to do, or you've struggled with it and haven't really come right. come back into it, or you like spending your time other ways mm-hmm. in pri- different priorities. People but, listening to this might be like, you guys are crazy. Yeah. <laughs> just Maybe say we are hate or crazy. like or whatever, but we are, we're very nuanced with things like that because we want their their minds to be open. We want their, them to have not a fixed mindset that it's this or that binary, black or white, but fixed. 
but we want it to be fl- their minds to be fluid, their experiences to be open, that things can change, that they can continue to work at things, effort based. And don't we want that for ourselves too? Yeah. I used to hate foods that I don't hate anymore, and that's why we say it's not agreeing with your taste buds right now, or you didn't love the way it was cooked this time, mm-hmm. or whatever it is. It's tasting right. a little funny today, whatever it is, because <clears throat> that we don't want to close any doors. We want to keep it all open. We want to keep everything going. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, I mean, just. I, when I, I, I'd like everyone to think back on their childhood at what labels were given to them and how they were affected by those. Especially because, comparatively oh, with yeah. siblings. and With the way they looked, with things they liked to do, with eating practices or food stuff, with bedtime stuff, with sports stuff. You know, I think we can get into this conversation even bigger with, with extracurricular activities. And, mm-hmm. and um, I think comparisons are just such a fascinating topic and so i know we just touched briefly on this but it was a breeze through for sure yeah but i think i think just don't do it don't do it don't or do it yourself in mm-hmm. your brain mm-hmm. or write it down with your partner and, and, and notice and every comparison add right now yeah. to the end of it right now 